Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from uh, South Dakota, Rapid City. I love it out here. And believe it or not, it is like 50 degrees warmer than where I'm at in Washington. So I'm excited about that. I know my wife is from North Dakota and she always complains about how cold it is back here. But yeah, 58 degrees actually yesterday. So I'm super excited about that. But what I'm most excited about today is um, we have Rob Wolf on our podcast today. And I'm so excited to interview him. I've been following him on social media for a while now. And he is an expert in nutrition. And he's written a few books. Uh, Wired to Eat is the one I was first introduced to. And I'll be letting him talk about that book. And I believe, I don't know if um, I'm talking on a turn, but I believe he's kind of the one, at least in my opinion, and for my life specifically, that kind of introduced the paleo diet and, and made it popular. And I'll let him talk about that also. But um, the most important part is he is a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. So don't mess with Rob Wolf. <laughs> and uh, Rob, without he has a great radio show too uh, called Healthy Rebellion. So you'll have to check that out also. And uh, Rob, without further ado, thank you for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, introduce yourself. Oh, thank you. The The most, most important part is I have two daughters and a wife. That That is the most important part. But uh, thanks thanks for having me. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, that is I, the most important. Uh, you know, a little bit of my background. Uh, I was, uh, by training, I had an undergrad in biochemistry and was looking at uh, Potentially medical school, potentially an MD PhD program. I was I was doing uh, bench level research in cancer and autoimmunity uh, at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center, and uh, developed ulcerative colitis so bad that I nearly died from it. And this was uh, 23 years ago. Uh, the the symptoms and kind of the development happened progressively over a couple of years. I at the time I was tinkering with a, a high carb, low fat that vegan diet. And for some people that may work wonderfully for me, it was an absolutely catastrophic disaster that, that nearly killed me. And it was interesting, the process of kind of figuring out what was going wrong with me at, at that time. Um, and that's a whole kind of long, somewhat interesting story in and of itself, but that's where this idea of ancestral eating of a paleo type diet got on my radar, uh, because the, the foods that I was reacting to are, are what we might typically call Neolithic foods, grains, legumes, uh, to some degree dairy. And I was kind of left wondering, well, if I if I react to all these things, what on earth does one eat if you do not eat those things? And I, I you know, it was kind of a train of consciousness flow. And I thought about, I, I, again, this was 1998 when this all happened. And somewhere along the line, I had heard the term Paleolithic diet, like this idea that you know, maybe there were some laudable characteristics to our, our the the health of our hunter-gatherer forebears based in part potentially on, on the types and amounts of foods that they ate. So I did some research on that. There wasn't much that existed at that point, but I found some, some material from uh, two main people, Lauren Cordain, who's kind of credited with the, uh, really the initial popularization of the paleo diet concept. He released the book, uh, the paleo diet back in 2001. And then another person, Arthur Devaney, who's a professor emeritus of economics from UC Irvine. And that was really about all the information that was available. There was a little bit here and there and some anthropology, uh, you know, websites and whatnot, but uh, really not much. But I, I was convinced enough and I was sick enough at that time that, you know, what do I really have to lose by, by changing my eating in this way? And so I did, and it put my ulcerative colitis into remission. And it was uh, such an interesting process because this was the beginning of my understanding of kind of evolutionary biology as it applies to health and thinking about sleep and food, circadian biology being this huge, huge piece uh, to this whole story, uh, the gut microbiome. And it was impactful enough that I didn't really want go to medical school. I, I, when I looked at what I was facing, you know, four more years of standard medical school and then a residency and, and all the rest of that, just to then come out the back end of it and, and 
practice medicine, if I wanted to practice it the way that I wanted to, would be, you know, largely at odds with what, what all of my training, which is mainly trying to prevent people from, from dying in like an acute care setting. So I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to do, but about a year, year and a half went by and I was still poking around on the interwebs and I found this kind of weird workout called CrossFit. And my, my friend, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, he and I started doing this workout in his garage of all places. And maybe three, four months went by and we had about 15 people that we had roped into working out with us. And we reached out to Greg and Lauren Glassman, the founders of CrossFit. And we said, hey, we want to open a gym. We want to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they said, yes, go be Achieve. There was no contract. Uh, it was it was very Wild West, you know, uh, a handshake type deal there getting that all started but that was arguably a, a large part of the reason why I kind of had the the trajectory that I did and the paleo diet definitely grew and died in lockstep with um the crossfit concept uh it was really an interesting vehicle for helping to expose people to this idea of of ancestral eating and a paleo type diet. And again, dovetailing in all these other features of like sleep and circadian biology, gut gut health. Um, I would say, even though I'm kind of known as the food guy, I, I, 50% or more of the time that I spend, whether I'm traveling or lecturing or whatnot, is talking about circadian biology, photo period, and, and you know, to some degree, the gut microbiome also. So the, the food part is important, but it's really this kind of holistic view pulling everything together, which is what I've, I've taken out of um, all this evolutionary biology experience. And that is a very long-winded um, explanation for kind of my genesis story. Yeah, well, that's a great story. And by the way, that would be uh, um, the phototherapy, circadian rhythm, and gut microbiome would be great topics for another podcast. Sure, <laughs> sure. Alone, you know, so so tell us a little bit about, for those of us that don't know, um, tell us a little bit about, in, in simple terms, what is the paleo diet? Uh, by exclusion, which is maybe the easier way to tackle it, it it's a way of eating that generally doesn't include or make the base of the diet around grains, legumes, and dairy. And, and that's, uh, honestly the easiest way to explain it, but the, you know, the inclusive way, uh, it's a way of eating that is focused on lean meat, seafood, fruits, vegetables, roots, shoots, tubers. Um, it's pretty agnostic as to macronutrient ratios, like, uh, uh, there are some cultures that eat a very high carb iteration of the paleo diet. There are some cultures that eat a very low carb iteration of the paleo diet. But the the commonality there, again, is is more akin to what they don't eat. And they're definitely not eating highly processed, hyper palatable foods like that. That is one thing that I, I, I think is a, you know, a consistency there and also something that uh, the paleo diet has in common with most traditional food you know, methodologies like the Mediterranean diet or different, different types of, uh, you know, like South American cuisine, Central American cuisine, which have, have served those populations well for hundreds or thousands of years and have uh, allowed people to be quite healthy and robust and live at, you know, free of the modern chronic degenerative diseases, uh, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or, or largely free of those, especially compared to what the the modern versions of that are. So basically no grains, um, no, no legumes. Is that right? Generally, generally. And it, again, this is when it's like, no, no, no. Then, you know, people freak out and, you know, and then somebody will say, well, cashews are technically a legume. And it's like, oh, okay. You got me, you know, but it, it, it's, um, the thing is, is that most people ha are so divorced from, anything that that we would uh, consider to be reasonable eating that we have to provide some lane lines you know um when you take a kid bowling for the first time these bumpers come up that keep them 100 out of the gutter and they throw the ball and it doesn't matter if it bounces back and forth five times you know it goes down the the lane and it knocks down some pins and the kid has a sense of success and then over time as they get better and better then we drop the, the, the bumpers and, and they have to figure out how to stay out of the gutter on their own. And, and 
to to some degree, that's the way I view virtually all you know diets is that somebody somewhere is trying to set up some lane lines to just give people somewhere to start because there's so many different opinions and and ways to to tackle all this that if you just throw everything at folks and they're overwhelmed and they don't do anything. So yeah, I mean, in general, a paleo type diet is quote, no grains, no legumes, no dairy, but it, it's uh, it really needs to be viewed not as religious doctrine, but just as, Hey, um, maybe you have some health or body composition, you know, concerns that you want to address. Here's a simple set of guidelines to get you going. Don't overanalyze it. Don't read into it too much. Like, let's do this for 30 days, reassess, and then we'll get more sophisticated and more refined as we as we go along. That makes sense. And that clears up, I mean, some of the confusion, because I think, you know, traditionally, when we think paleo, we're like, okay, well, what did our ancestors eat? And, you know, for thousands of years, we've had herding animals, right? So we've drank dairy either from cows or goats for thousands of years. Is that correct? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a, it's an interesting point there where we have some populations that have uh, developed the lactase persistence gene. So all humans express lactase as babies um, because we're, we're, you know, hopefully be uh, being able to consume breast milk. And so lactose is this disaccharide that if you don't have a specific enzyme to break it down, it gives you a lot of gas and a lot of bloating. It's very, very uncomfortable. Um, Some people around the world in Northern European, African and Asian populations developed different iterations of maintaining lactase throughout life or or later in life. But there are quite a number of populations that don't have the lactase persistence gene, but do consume dairy as part of their traditional eating. But it's because they develop things like yogurt and kefir and hard cheeses, which remove the lactose out of the, the the dairy. And so our technology and our culture have allowed us to exploit these foods that historically might have been problematic in other situations. So it, it's not just our genetics and it's not just our epigenetics, but it's also our technology and culture that have modified things in, in ways that may make a, a food available to us. Yeah. But I, I will say there's still a lot of people, especially in modern times with, um, uh, leaky gut and whatnot that um, experience a lot of systemic inflammatory issues from from dairy. Like it's one of those dairy and eggs are what uh, are two of those um, suspicious foods. Like if people are having like joint issues or kind of like foggy headedness mm-hmm. after meals, um, those are things that I like to pull out in a thirty day reset because they are are common uh, immunogenic problems for a lot of people. And that it's just kind of an elimination. You're just eliminating things that might yep. be problematic. Elimination yep. diet, essentially, right? Yeah, pull them out, reintroduce, see how folks do. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, I, I, so paleo is not necessarily low carb. You're talking about fruits, right? Well, it, it could be quite high carb. Like the the Catavans of, of uh, uh, the South Pacific eat about a 70 to 80% carbohydrate diet. And, and, you know, it's considered paleo. They're actually one of the better studied groups of, of folks. Um, uh, Stefan Lindeberg, before he died, uh, he did a, a really amazing series of studies where he had some epidemiological studies looking at the, the Catavans versus a Nordic uh, Swedish population. And he postulated that uh, certain immunogenic compounds in Neolithic foods, uh, these things called lectins, might be a problem for folks. And then he went through and developed a series of studies that went from an epidemiological study to an animal model to a human intervention. And it, it really was quite convincing, but this was not a low carb a group of folks at all. And some people will say, well, the Catavans have been eating that way for several hundred, possibly several thousand years. And maybe there's some genetic adaptations to that. That's a possibility, but I'm of the opinion that humans should be able to handle a really broad diet, almost regardless of what their genetic background is. There is a little variability on that, but, um, it, it's more our modern world. I, I, I think some of the, the side effects of overuse of antibiotics can be problematic. 
um, some gut issues, which which the antibiotics can play play into that. But I think that those end up being factors that that end up limiting us or making it challenging for folks like me. Like I, I don't do spectacularly well on a high carb diet. I, I I will range somewhere between like fifty and hundred grams of carbs a day. Um, the, my more active days I can eat at the higher end of that. And if I eat much above that, I just don't feel well. My A1C start going up. So I clearly end up with uh, kind of poor blood sugar control, but yeah, I mean the paleo diet is, um, it's quality oriented, not macronutrient oriented. Whereas if we talk about like a ketogenic diet, Interestingly, the quality becomes not that important, at least for some people in ketogenic diet space. Um, but the macronutrient ratios, the amount of protein, carbs, fat become really, really important. And, and clearly, one could eat a paleo type diet built around ketogenic macros, and that would be perfectly fine. And that that's kind of what I, I do, uh, you know, aside from a little bit more carbs on, on hard training days than normal. So, you know, folks oftentimes ask a little bit about, or a common question, I guess, is a, a good way to, to frame this, you know, what's the difference between keto and paleo? And I, I mentioned a little bit about that earlier. Uh, paleo really, it, in my mind, is focused on food quality. And uh, if it's if it really brings something powerful to the conversation, it, it asks some questions around immunogenic properties of foods like like some people really don't do well with tomatoes potatoes eggplants they're in the nightshade family which there there are uh fairly toxic constituents in some of those those plants some people do fine with them other other people don't uh gluten is a another example not everybody is gluten intolerant or has celiac for for the people that have problems with that it's really a a huge deal so paleo kind of shines a light on um Appropriate protein, uh, uh, you know, adequate protein, appropriate glycemic load, which again will be a little bit dependent on genetics and epigenetics and activity level and whatnot. And then kind of the cherry on the Sunday is the consideration of, uh, you know, immunogenic foods. And that can vary from person to person. Unfortunately, like I'm highly reactive to eggs now. And I think that's because I over consumed eggs in the the past. Um, but they are also kind of evolutionarily kind of a novel food. Like people in the past would not have had just acres of chickens that we can harvest eggs from and, and eat a six egg omelet, you know, every day for years. So I, I think that that would have been much more of a, a transient kind of thing, but the paleo diet is definitely oriented towards food quality. And then the ketogenic diet is, is primarily concerned about macronutrient ratios and we have like the traditional epilepsy type ketogenic diet, which is quite low protein, very, very low carb and high fat, like upwards of 80% fat, which doesn't leave much for um, other macronutrients. You know, clearly there's only, you know, 20, 25% left if you're at a 75, 80% uh, fat diet to, you know, divide up between protein and and carbs, but that was, that diet was developed 101 years ago, um, for epilepsy, uh, for a condition that, you know, before the development of anti-epileptic drugs, there really was no good treatment for epilepsy. And, uh, interestingly, the, the ketogenic diet has, has long been superior generally to the, the drugs that are available. It, it's just a much more challenging thing to, to, you know, do that intervention, but this key, epilepsy based ketogenic diet, medical ketogenic diet is a very high fat, low protein, very low carb diet. And then we have things like Atkins and modified Atkins where the protein intake is much higher. Carbohydrate is still restricted, but the, the fat intake is, is more moderate 60, 65%. And what's interesting there is that we find a lot of folks that just uh, just need help with weight loss, just need help with some metabolic conditions. They do great on that. And even athletes do pretty well on, on that, depending on, on what type of background they have. And again, we could dovetail in a uh, uh, the food quality characteristics of a paleo diet, really trying to have high quality, you know, 
whole real foods. And you could dovetail that with some iteration of a ketogenic diet. I, I think a medical ketogenic diet is going to be really difficult to pull off in that, that context, because getting, um, 80% of your calories from fat and not using something, uh, like a whole whipping cream and butter and whatnot is going to be really hard. Like it, it's difficult to do, but something like a, a modified Atkins, um, is quite easy to do with, you know, paleo type foods. And so those are, you know, again, one of the common questions is what's the difference between paleo and keto and the keto is primarily concerned with the macronutrient ratios, how much protein, carbs, fat, mm -hmm we have there. And then paleo is primarily a consideration of just the food quality. And really the big piece to that, I think, or the big contribution that it's provided is an awareness that there are some foods that are immunogenic for some people that cause autoimmune issues, gut issues, inflammatory issues. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I know there's a big keto craze right now, and maybe I'm overstating that, but um, I know one of the things with keto, and I would like your opinion on this, is that, you know, people think, well, if it's keto, they can eat all they want of it, right? So I've seen right. keto people eat a bag of pork rinds. So can you speak on that? Yeah, and I've been on both sides of that equation. So, you know, Gary Gary Tobbs, who who I respect his work a lot, but I, I think he needs to update his, his thinking on a lot of things. Um he was kind of this beacon of, of hope back around 2000, 2001. He wrote a piece that, that really was incredibly popular, and it was for the New York Times, The Soft Science of Dietary Fat. And it was a little bit of a history of the Atkins diet, where it came from, and some of the, the, uh, the remarkably powerful clinical applications that this, this low-carb diet has. And... Um, he, he began to formulate and put forward this idea that um, one could not gain weight with a low insulin diet and, you know, basically a low carb or, or and or ketogenic diet. And he really uh, brought that whole idea forward in his seminal book, uh, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which is like mm -hmm. this 600 page book. It's remarkably well referenced and it was super compelling. There's some really compelling pieces to the story. And from my personal experience, at least initially eating a low carb diet, I tried to overeat. Like I would just pour olive oil. I would make a salad and I would pour olive oil. I bought olive oil by the, by the gallon jugs, uh, you know, from Costco. And I was very active. I was doing jujitsu, doing some, some kickboxing, lifting some weights. Um, and I just couldn't, I was leaner than I'd ever been in my life. I mean, just like shredded through the midsection. And I had, uh, prior to that, when I was eating a higher carb diet, I always had that, what I now recognize as kind of insulin resistant fat storage around my, my midsection and whatnot. So that was just this, this shocking difference for me. And, and it was really compelling with, with Gary's notion that so long as you keep insulin levels down, then you were, you were good to go on, on like fat gain. And all, also there's a, a meme out there that, um, so long as you keep insulin low, that you are 100% scot free from any type of cardiovascular disease concerns. And unfortunately, I just think that uh, all of that ended up being wrong. I do think that carbohydrate control is incredibly powerful for a host of issues. Um, uh, just like last week, and uh, uh, Sean, I'll, I'll try to remember to dig up this paper and send it to you. Uh, the American Diabetes Association came out with a position paper saying that low-carb diets provide a, a disproportionate leverage in glycemic control in type 2 diabetics. Like it was, it was just holy smokes, 40 years late, but, you know, thank God they're, they're finally getting there. And it was kind of unequivocal on the, on the point. So I think low-carb diets are shockingly powerful tools, but you know, like any tool, a hammer is a great tool and a saw is a great tool. But if I want a precision cut in a piece of wood, I don't use a hammer. If I want to drive a, a, a wedge of metal through a piece of wood, I don't use a saw. So, um, I, I think, you know, carbohydrate restricted diets are, are really, um, powerful. And I think having a snack of pork rinds is probably reasonable when one is on a low carb diet, but I think making, you know, for, for too many people, they start down this path of, of a low carb diet, 
maybe have some success initially and then start getting pulled into all the low carb treats and doing things like a stick of yeah. butter in their coffee. And then lo and behold, six months down the road, they start gaining weight and they start seeing like tri uh, triglycerides, ironically elevating, certainly cholesterol and lipoproteins elevating on this, this low carb diet. And, and it's because they're just, they, they figured out a way to overeat on a diet that is arguably very, very satiating and difficult to overeat on. But a stick of butter is like a thousand calories or 500 calories. If you do, you know, when the, the buttered coffee was all the, the craze. And I actually recommended that back in 2005 for a while. And then we were doing blood work on our folks. And I saw like 50% of the people that did this, their cholesterol levels just exploded. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> If you're not a Sherpa living in the Himalayas, you know, humping a hundred pounds up a mountain at, at 20,000 feet elevation, apparently this isn't a good thing and may, you know, may not be a good thing even under that circumstance other than, you know, needing some really concentrated calories. So this was nearly a decade before Dave Asprey, you know, popularized the, the, uh, bulletproof coffee and the butter and the coffee and everything, okay. but, but people just, um, the, the cool thing about the time that we live in is we can have an idea and we can experiment with the idea and then we can test different parameters. So and, and the, the kind of bugger, though, is that some people will eat a low carb diet. They feel really good. They, they do the buttered coffee. And I know I'm kind of going far afield from what your original question was, but they're tri uh, not their triglycerides, but their lipoproteins and cholesterol explode which I really do think is increasing their cardiovascular disease risk. It's mm -hmm. not the same as if they have high blood sugar and high blood pressure and a smoker and, you know, all these other things. But I, I think it's definitely a concern, but they still feel great. And I think that that's one of the challenging features of some of these low carb diets is that when somebody's eating themselves into cardiovascular disease on a high carb diet, they, they kind of feel like shit going there. Like it, it's, they know that they don't feel good. They have highs and lows in their energy and bad blood sugar crashes and everything. But there are people that just, they, and I'm kind of one of these folks, like I would feel great just drinking buttered coffee. Like my cognition is good and I, you know, I'm firing on all cylinders, but um, my lipoproteins and cholesterol just go to the moon. And as I have tried to make every deal with the universe that I can. They're just like, well, so long as my blood pressure is low and so long as my blood sugar is low and it, it, you know, all of my imaging has, has been good thus far. But as I've learned more and more about lipidology, I've, I've just come to the conclusion, like, well, I don't need to drink butter in my coffee every day. And if I have some olive oil and some macadamias for some of my fat, so I get some monounsaturated fat instead of just, you know, kind of dairy based saturated fat, uh, my cholesterol and lipoproteins fall by 50%. Like they just cut in half and they fall right in the, the realm that any doctor would be like, yeah, you look great. You're, you're going to die from something, but it's probably not going to be cardiovascular disease. So again, I know that was a long rambling, uh, you know, answer to a short question, but yeah, I, I think that folks, yeah. um, take the, the, cool elements kind of the liberation of a low carb diet because you can have some things like pork rinds and maybe some buttered coffee or something sometimes and in reasonable amounts that that's the thing that gets lost in this is that uh, amounts still matter and there was a time when people were completely of the opinion that the amount that you consume didn't matter on a low carb diet and there are still folks out there that, that perpetuate that that idea and i do think it's better than overeating a mixed diet like overeating a mix like pizza and ice cream, high right. carb and high fat. Yeah, that's going to be a disaster, but it's, it's not a, a free lunch, um, overeating on a low carb diet either. Well, so you answered Thank you for that long answer, because there were some questions that popped up during there that you answered. So I like it because the cholesterol thing, thank you for clearing that up. Mm -hmm. I know there's a page on cholesterol and I know there's a lot more to the story with cardiovascular disease and just cholesterol. Yes. Yeah. That's what I try to explain to my patients as a pharmacist too. Yeah. Um, so is it calories in, calories out for losing weight? Yes. With the caveat though, that not all calories have the same metabolic effect, have the same hormonal effect. So it's really well understood that overeating protein, like there've been these fascinating protein overfeeding studies and 
folks don't lose weight, but what they do end up losing is fat and they gain muscle mass, even if they're not resistance training. And, and this is making people eat like uh, uh, two and a half or three grams of protein per pound of body weight, which mm -hmm. is just a, a, a gag fest amount of protein. <laughs> like you have to really like hold people's feet to the fire to, to even get them to eat that amount of food, which is interesting in and of itself. And this is something that, you, you know, was somewhat universal within nutrition now is that protein is a highly satiating nutrient. And if we eat adequate protein, we tend to eat less of other items. Um, interestingly though, you know, fat, it, it, like a scoop of mayonnaise is really, really easy to store. Now the context though, is it, it, to store on our body as, as excess calories. So, um, Carbohydrates are a little bit more difficult to store because we, the carbohydrates, although they spike insulin and that facilitates the storage of calories as, uh, as fat on our, our body, in our person, the excess calories of carbohydrates have to get converted into fat. And so there's this kind of step there and there's a little bit of loss of, of energy in that. And so this is though where the, the combinations of foods, like it, it, it's well understood in animal husbandry that if you want to fatten up a pig, for example, you have a decent amount of carbohydrates as well as a decent amount of fat because the carbohydrate fat combo tastes really good. It tends to stimulate insulin secretion and that insulin secretion. So if things taste good, you tend to overeat. If we overeat, we've got excess calories. And if our insulin is a little high because we've eaten too many calories and too many carbohydrates, then it's easy to store all of that excess fat and the carbohydrates. So it, this is again, where it, it gets, uh, it, you know, calories in calories out. Yes, it's true. But if somebody eats a high protein diet, they will tend to not overeat. So whatever else they eat, whether it's carbs or fat or a carb fat combo, so long as people eat an adequate amount of protein, and my recommendation on that is about a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight is kind of the upper and lower bounds on that. So if people eat adequate protein, it's really difficult for them to overeat the other stuff. Like they just tend not to do that. So, you know, calories matter hormones matter, <laughs> satiety matters, like all of this stuff matters. And, and, uh, it, it's, it's frustrating because you will have folks say in the really, uh, kind of low carb jihadi camp that, that they're just like, the only thing that matters is keeping insulin low. And there is science that really shoots holes in that rather powerfully. And you have these folks that I would, I would say are out of the like evidence-based nutrition camps that, that will, you know, blow some holes in that. But then these evidence-based nutrition folks tend to mainly work with like fitness competitors and figure athletes who are on the best of days tend to have some disordered eating as, as kind of like a, a baseline for them and are, are either disordered eating or are remarkably disciplined and very, very different. And what we take from the way that they eat, I, I don't know that it can be applied to any type of a general population. Like these folks will eat chicken breast and pop tarts and, and look amazing on stage. And I just don't know that that's a, like, where do you build a public health recommendation around that? Like it, it's kind of ridiculous. Right. I, uh, so, um, yeah, both of these worlds existing at the same time and both of them, it, it's kind of like the blind men who, you know, they're feeling the elephant and one's got the trunk and, you know, they've got different parts of it. And both of these folks have some insight and have some truth. And they, they both have, have huge, in my opinion, glaring holes in the way that they're looking at things. Uh, food quality matters, satiety of the food that we eat matters. The timing matters. You know, if we're eating the bulk of our calories late in the evening, it seems to have a more negative metabolic effect than if we overate early in the day. So even the, the timing of our food matters, and that's a whole, you, you know, if you ever want to do a circadian biology uh, thing at some point, you being a pharmacist, you could speak to this powerfully. Um, we're discovering now that certain chemotherapeutics like cancer drugs work better sometimes either morning versus night, you know, depending on the, the, the drug and the type of cancer. So why would we be the least bit surprised that the timing of our food wouldn't have this like really massive effect? And again, from the perspective of trying to keep things simple, 
here's this whole other layer of stuff. And somebody's like, geez, man, I just want to know what to eat. You know, not, not the, yeah. the amounts and yeah. the timing. Like this is really high level out there stuff, but, but it's, uh, but not take these, really, it makes it, sense, right? It does. It does. But for somebody brand new to this, like it, it can be just like a fire hose of information and yeah. it, Oh, do I, do I, well, I was super busy with the kids and I couldn't eat all day. And so I don't eat now when I get home. And so then they don't eat, they didn't eat their protein. Then they wake up in the middle of the night starving and eat the chocolate cake, you know? And so it, yeah, it's uh that's where I'm, I'm just very protein centric in my, my recommendations for what folks should do. And, and we see it, we, you know, we've seen that, that for years, you know, back on your subject, when you introduced uh, yourself and talked about circadian rhythm, you know, we've seen it for years in shift workers, people that work mm -hmm. night. And I mean, they can have huge issues with gaining weight. And I think, you know, a lot of it is they might just be, you know, bored eating at night when, you know, whatever. But also, I think it's the timing of it, too. You know, I mean, I, I talk to our patients all the time that are having hormone type issues that, you know, we are diurnal creatures. We are made to work during the day and sleep at night, period. And, and kudos goes out to all the shift workers and night workers out there. But when they start having health issues and use it not till later, because I think when we're younger, we can adapt a little bit better. Right. But when they start having health issues and they're in their forties or whatever, I tell them, it's like, you know, you've got to change your job. You, you just can't work right. nights anymore because right. it's just, we're not really made to work nights. And so I should, we shouldn't be really that surprised about the eating at night um, um, correlation. Yeah. And, you know, we've done a lot of work with police, military and fire and the uh, uh, metabolic screening. And um, for the folks that have to be in shift work and are heading down that metabolically deranged path. Um, the only tool that we have, uh, by and large, we try to improve their sleep as best as we can. Dark rooms, cool environment, maybe taking a little bit of melatonin, you know, all that type of stuff. But the, the only real good lever we have is a low carb diet because those people, a, a, a uh, sleep deprived individual can be as insulin resistant as a type two diabetic. And that will reverse with sleep. It will improve with exercise and whatnot. But for six or eight hours of the day, that person is as insulin resistant as a type two diabetic. So if they eat a, you know, a high carb diet, uh, high carb meals, particularly highly refined carbs or liquid carbohydrates in the form of soda or something like that, metabolically, it's a disaster. Like you, you're setting up non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You're getting all the visceral adiposity, which is highly inflammatory. And so for certain populations, the only tool that we have um and until and unless we can sh shift them out of that that schedule is a low carb diet yeah and i i will say you know i we we preach it all the time on our podcast and to patients that there are really only three things that we can do to keep our bodies healthy and that's um diet exercise and sleep and the most important sleep right and right i tell them we will die without sleep before we'll die without food. That th those those yep. are just facts, yep. and I mean, we don't have to live. We don't have to to, to um, exercise to live. We, right. You know, we'll be healthier if we exercise, but we do not have. To, you know, exercise does not keep us alive. So, the most important thing: sleep, sleep, sleep. You know, yep. rest and recovery. That's when we get stronger. That's when our body repairs. All that. So. Um, so question for you, Rob, thank you for all this information. This has been great. Um, so you, you are a proponent of, of, of electrolytes and, um, I have used LMNT electrolytes and why in a primal environment, ancestrally eating, like we were talking about, why did we not need to supplement with electrolytes and why should we now? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I, I don't have a fantastic answer it's speculative so so this one i would definitely fire under the file under the speculation category uh part of it is you know so like i'm sipping on a cup of coffee right now it's a big big cup of coffee it's close to 20 ounces um i think a lot of what we experience as kind of electrolyte inadequacy and particularly hyponatremia the low sodium is because we just kind of over consume liquids and if you Dig around in some of the anthropological literature, uh, uh, and, and it's hard to tell because so many of the the groups that we encounter, um, the San, the Hadza, are in these very desertified 
marginalized environment. So it's hard to extrapolate, you know, like, would this have applied to, uh, you know, Plains Indians or, or Native Americans living in like a, a riparian habitat, you know, with trees and creeks and all this stuff. But there's kind of a reality, though, that that rarely were people running around, you know, like a, a some sort of a skin bag with water in it. Yes, but people weren't just like sipping on it. 24 seven, which I, I think is, is a big part of the, the problem that we have. Uh, the, the were interesting potential sodium stores in the, uh, the ancestral environment. As you will know, we, we tend to store more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell. We, you know, and this is where our sodium potassium pumps really get going. And, when an animal dies or if an animal is, is killed in, in normal circumstances, the sodium potassium amounts will equi equilibrate. The potassium from inside cells will go outside the cell and the sodium from outside the cell will go inside the cell and they'll equilibrate. And the way that animals are, are killed and butchered in kind of the West, they are bled. So most of the sodium leaves the animal. So mm -hmm. under current circumstances, about a kilogram, 2.2 pounds of meat provides about a gram of sodium for, for that, that, that amount of meat. It, just back at the envelope math I've, I've done would suggest that if an animal was allowed to, um, you know, the, the, uh, the electrolytes to equilibrate, uh, you know, on both sides of the cell membrane, we could easily double that, maybe even triple it. So I think that that would be a, a source of, uh, you know, additional sodium. And then it does look like uh, historically people have been attracted to salt plains, salt licks, and there, there uh, almost certainly was some sort of a uh, an economy of moving salt from those sources, like the ocean or or inland, uh, uh, you know, seas that that have uh, salt plains that that was part of a, a trade mechanism, but for sure there, there was not the, you know, the, the kind of, you know, element electrolyte in a sachet kind of, kind of deal. And one, one final piece of that, although our ancestors were clearly quite active, they were not doing the amounts of things that, that we do ironically. So we are both more sedentary and more active than our, our most likely what our, hunter-gatherer ancestors were. So um, me doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu five days a week, two hours each day, wearing a gi, and that gi being five to eight pounds of sweat when, when I'm done, yeah. and, you know, maybe five to eight grams of sodium lost, that would have, in, in ancestral terms, an individual maybe did that once a week, not five times a week and, and people were active otherwise, but it, it, Sean, you're a, a cyclist. And so your work output is arguably probably two or three times what, uh, you know, hunter gatherer right. type ancestral patterns would be. And that necessitates an electrolyte replacement that is, is probably two to three times what we would normally have. And then again, if you layer in some of the, the faulty recommendations that we've been given over the last 40, 35, 40 years, eat or, or consume eight, eight ounce glasses of water per day. And this was the absolutely no science to back this. Um, even the big medical organizations are finally kind of like, okay, we don't know where that came from and we don't really make this recommendation anymore. And it, it seems to be causing problems because of fostering that hyponatremia, the low uh, blood sodium, which, uh, before we were recorded, you, you commented that, um, when you have adequate sodium, you kind of notice that you don't desire carbohydrates the same way. And an interesting thing that's going on there is if we are low sodium and we consume more carbohydrates, we will upregulate insulin, which upregulates aldosterone, which causes us to retain sodium. So increasing carbohydrate intake is kind of a slick way of actually retaining more of whatever sodium that we have in our environment. So I, I, again, I know there was a lot of different angles there, but I, I think it's kind of a multi-pronged answer. There's not really a, a simple answer right. to that, that simple question. Yeah. Well, I love it all. And essentially, and I, and I've always wondered this, essentially where we're, we're diluting our sodium stores mm -hmm. when we drink water. And I will tell you like, um, when you hear about triathletes like Ironman triathletes or even marathons, possibly marathons, I'm not really sure um, because they're quite quite shorter. But you you don't ever hear of 
I wouldn't say ever, but you, you, it, it is, people don't realize this, but a lot of times during triathlons, people that don't, during those Ironman, they, that don't, that don't know how to fuel properly, they will take water at every station, you know, it's the right. first one, water at every station they get. And they ended up, I mean, there's been a couple, they've been a few deaths because they have diluted their sodium stores so much because they really overhydrated. And yep. I'm sure they were scared to get dehydrated because we're told drink, 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 because you're going to get dehydrated. And I think about when you talk about ancestors and primal eating, you know, even 40 years ago when I was a kid or, you know, more than that, 45 years ago when I was an elementary kid, you know, on weekends, we would leave in the morning and we wouldn't get home until for hours later. And we, they didn't have bottled water. They didn't have, right. you know, we never had that stuff. Right. Because, and our daily conveniences, like you say, with the coffee, it's just easy to drink all the time now. Right. And so I could see that 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 could partly be an issue. There's actually been a, a remarkable number of people that have died in um, military boot camps, you know, uh, football double days, and then like the the triathlon marathon mm -hmm. type of deal from hyponatremia from over consuming water, diluting their sodium. They get cerebral edema. It's actually an overabundance then of, of potassium relative to sodium. And the, the people can get very sick and can can die. And many of them do. There is not a single documented incidence of somebody dying from dehydration within sport in like the last hundred years. Uh, like it, it, the only time that people die from dehydration is if they're like lost in the desert, trapped in yeah. a mine cave in. You know, I mean, they are just separated from water then they they do that but uh you know things like uh fraternity and sorority hazing where people consume huge amounts of fluid whether it's alcohol or or water um lots of deaths associated with that so it is clearly more dangerous to over consume water than to under consume water because when people legitimately start to get thirsty they will do anything <laughs> you know within their means to fix that problem right. so i uh I guess, again, that's kind of a long roundabout thing where it used to very, very long ago. Um, well, I guess not that long ago, like, you know, for I, I'm going to be 50 here in a, a couple of days. Um, the the recommendation right as I was a kid and a little bit before me was take a salt tablet and kind of chew on that and then sip on water to satiety. And we never had people die at football. It was unheard of to have people die in military exercises and whatnot. But then, um, you know, there, there were some studies that suggested that there's a performance decrease with dehydration and like some cognitive changes. And I, the replicatability of that is interesting because most of the best endurance athletes, when they go across the finish line, they may be like three to 5% dehydrated, they may be three to 5% lighter due to water loss. And that may be that, um, they're so good because they're able to still maintain their output while being dehydrated, or this is actually a natural adaptive state, which I would actually think is kind of the case that these people get really good at being efficient at being lighter and, and carrying less water weight, you know, when, when push really comes to shove and you need to do a, a huge amount of work output. But again, super long answer to like, should you pee clear or not? Um, yeah. I, I don't know that that's like the, the weather vane or the, you know, the, the thing that I would use as the directional, um, you know, influence on my, my fluid intake. Well, I, I think being an endurance athlete myself, I think you just figure out, you really figure out how resilient the body is. Mm -hmm. And we don't need a lot of extra water. And I, I, you know, I don't think we need to be dangerous and dehydrate ourselves, but we can go quite a bit without, you know, fluids. Um, I think it's important your, your, you know, your, um, your fueling strategy, but I know too, with food, you can go quite a bit without food too on, right. on longer endurance type stuff. Um, cause you can't eat enough to burn, you know, you're burning 700, a thousand calories an hour. You can't eat that many calories an hour. So, right. you know, your body is just, just resilient. And, you know, the, the best endurance athletes, if they want to be fast, they want to time it as well as they can to hydrate themselves the least as possible to keep their weight the lowest and not have to stop to pee. I mean, right. that's really, you know, that's really the case. So, right. Uh, right. 
So great, some great answers. And I, I know when I use the LMT electrolytes after my rides, which I've been doing for a few weeks now, um, you know, I just, they're very high in sodium. It's, it's true. I mean, you know, it's a gram of sodium and you can de definitely taste that. And it's very refreshing. And um, then I just don't have carbohydrate cravings. It's, it's, it's really, I was really, really um, pleasantly surprised. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Like we've seen folks, um, they put element into the roundup and like they've been tracking heart rate variability and they will see their HRV score go up because it, it appears that their recovery is improving. And then you don't have to do element to get this, like eating, um, 10, 10 olives provides a gram of sodium, eating a large pickle or doing a swig of pickle juice provides a gram of sodium. It, it's just, it's remarkably difficult to get enough sodium to support a, a really legitimately active lifestyle. We've done some work with uh, NFL teams and they're reporting to us is that these large guys, you know, they're 200, 210 pounds, but you know, maybe larger than that. The, these guys will lose 10 pounds of water in the course of a hard training session or game and 10 grams of sodium. Wow. That's 20 grams of table salt because the, you know, the, the scoop of table salt is, is actually 60% chloride and only 40% yeah. sodium. So it, it's a, it's a stunning amount of salt that you that need to put in. Yeah. Right. Right. So I'm going to, um, as we're getting wrapped up here, Rob, I appreciate your time. I'm going to quick fire some questions. So, um, I have a twin brother who's a bodybuilder and, um, he wanted to know if there's any difference between, if an ectomorph versus an endomorph versus a mesomorph should eat differently. I mean, the mesomorph kind of has it easy. Uh, you know, they're by, by implicit, we just know these people, they're, they're kind of lean and muscular almost regardless of what they do. The ectomorph is um, usually kind of rail thin and, and they seem to really benefit from the higher protein. And like, if they're really wanting to gain muscle mass, they, they, they can't do much endurance activity. Like the, they, they have a tendency towards like an, an endurance phenotype. And so if they really want to gain muscle mass, like they, uh, uh, they, they can't be doing tons of treadmill work and, and running and, and conditioning at the same time. They may be able to do that later, but they've really got to gain the muscle mass first, which is going to necessitate higher protein, higher calories and all that. Right. That makes sense. So I think we kind of cleared this up a little bit, but a question on, um, on, um, on keto. Well, we didn't really clear this up. I know paleo potatoes are okay on paleo, correct? I mean, maybe it depends on your ancestral potato or your you, you know, uh, uh, potatoes are in the nightshade category and some people seem to be reactive to those. So it, it's one, one of those things that I would, I would file as, as a bit of a suspect food. Like if folks are experiencing some systemic inflammatory issues and their the potatoes are like a, a mainstay, then that would be some, I would just shift them to like sweet potatoes or yuca or cassava or something like that and, and see how they do with these other things and then reintroduce the potatoes. So that's the reason for the sweet potatoes versus the uh, regular potatoes. Cause, um, is because of the nightshade issue. So inflam inflammation primarily. Yeah. Because ironically the, um, the sweet potatoes have much more fructose in them. So some people with some polymorphisms around non-alcoholic fatty liver disease do less well with sweet potatoes relative to just starch from like white rice and regular potatoes. So yeah. Yeah. I thank you for clearing that up because I did, I've, you know, you, you hear about the benefits of sweet potatoes, but then you look at, versus regular potatoes but then you look at the macronutrients or even micronutrients of it and they're pretty close except sweet pretty potatoes have close. sugar I yeah. mean, you know more fructose so that yeah. to me didn't make sense except now if it's on a nightshade that does make sense so right. it's inflammation so um women that are over 40 um eating keto or paleo uh, especially paleo hormonal issues over 40 women should they eat paleo should they eat different they they should certainly eat a high protein diet I mean, it, it gets ever more important. And I think some iteration of, of paleo is great. I, I, I think folks overly complicate the, the like female hormone issue in the following way. Um, women are definitely more of a canary in the coal mine to, uh, stress. So if 
they are under eating, under eating protein, under consuming sodium. So like the inadequate sodium intake is a massive problem for, for women in general and can get them pushed into like that, that female athlete triad kind of, kind of story overreaching over training. So the, the big things that I, I see there, the, the non-negotiables are adequate protein and adequate sodium. And then you kind of figure out, you know, it, it, does this person run better on higher fat or higher carb or a combo, but the most successful, um, keto fueled combat athletes that I've seen like jujitsu and MMA ironically are women and, and, it, and their hormones are, are fantastic. And again, it may be kind of a survivor bias or selection bias, but the thing that was interesting about the people that I've seen in this category really on point with protein, really on point with getting adequate electrolytes, specifically sodium. Yeah. Um, thanks for putting that up. Now on that topic of, of keto, um, and this is, this is more, this is my question. And, um, so as a, as an endurance athlete, um, you know, glycogen stores are very important. And, um, I have always wondered when eating, you know, um, whether it's keto or just low carb, can we really deplete our glycogen stores completely? Now, I know obviously we can, when we exercise intensely, we're going to deplete our glycogen, but if you're in ketosis, um, or you're eating, you know, mostly protein or mostly fat, you're not eating carbs, aren't our glycogen stores going to replace themselves or do we really deplete our glycogen? Uh, after about 30 days, a guy, Bill Legacos, who's a, a PhD in, in biochemistry and really goes deep on this stuff. He's, he did, hasn't done this research, but he's really good at finding it and kind of consolidating it. And, uh, once you, one is keto adapted, uh, what they find is that, um, uh, muscle glycogen levels in the keto adapted are about the same as people that are, are eating higher carb diets. It's maybe a little bit less, but it's, it's not shockingly less. Uh, right. the, the thing there though, is that, um, I do think there are some central governor considerations like the brain sensing how much energy we have and, and those sorts of things. And I do think that there's a reality that it, at some like put it this way, this might be helpful. If we were to, the way that a, a keto fueled athlete would really, really shine is if we said you can't consume any water or any electrolytes or any food, how far can you go before you're done? And the keto fueled athlete is going to crush people, you know, right. it, it, they're, they're going to, but they're going to have a, a, uh, a modest pace. They're not going to go anaerobic. They're not going to get into that glycolytic pathway. Um, almost no sport allows you to stay 100% aerobic, like in that like zone two area. Right. Like if you're, if you're on a bike and you need to pass somebody or, you know, you've got an uphill climb, you're going to go anaerobic and you have to figure out how to, how to deal with that. And what, what's interesting to me is that the muscle glycogen isn't low in these folks, but their performance oftentimes is decreased. I think one thing is sodium. Like if they really address sodium, it allows them to, to stay in the fight longer because a low carbon environment causes us to lose sodium due, due to mm -hmm. the naturesis of fasting. So people see, tend to notice that they get kind of a second gear, uh, when they, they are low carb and they, they get adequate sodium. And I, it really bridges the gap of, of what they've had, um, uh, uh, when they were more carb fueled and then also just doing targeted carbohydrate, you know, some 15, 20 grams of carbs per hour in a, yeah. in a drink, um, you know, while they're keto fueled in general. And then even then that, that whole thing is, is interesting. Like if, uh, uh, if the individual is training with enough volume and enough intensity, they may end up consuming a hundred or 200 grams of carbs a day and they're still ketotic the whole time. So like yeah. a ketogenic diet becomes this, you know, somewhat arbitrary thing. So there's a lot of moving parts there, but if, uh, it, it, the muscle glycogen is clearly important, but the, um, adequate sodium, adequate electrolytes, and then being smart about not being inflexible, you know, if you know that you've got some sort of a hill climb that you're going to do, then doing like a, a dextrose or a maltodextrin or something like that yeah. and, and having it at a isotonic solution. So it's not a gut irritant and everything. Then, you you know, we, we know that folks are going to do better under those circumstances. Well, thanks for clearing that up. Yeah. I, uh, 
there's a big argument about that. And the, a lot of times the people that argue it, they've never done an endurance sport. So like right. you say, the zones are important. You're, you know, zone two, sure. Zone two, you can go all day long, you know, right. zone one, zone two, but you know, you start going anaerobic or, you know, at lactic acid threshold or whatever, you, you're going to need carbs or, and, and even if you don't, I can tell you mentally, it makes you feel better. Even yeah. if it doesn't mean physically, it makes you feel better mentally. <laughs> well, it, you know, there there's studies that have been done where they will run people to exhaustion on a treadmill and they'll just let them rinse their mouth with a, a sweet tasting solution. There's no calories in it at all. It's a non-nutritive sweetener. And they will get another three to 5% of performance out of the person. Because again, the central governor of the brain is like, oh, we have some nutrition. We're okay. Yep. Um, it's really interesting to me that... Uh, so much of what governs performance, like our ability to contract a muscle is protecting us from our own selves. And it's interesting from like a survival perspective, because you could make the case that we should be able to have some like override where we're in a fight for our life and we can exert superhuman strength, but no, we can't. And, you know, if we're in a, a race for our life, um, maybe we should be able to override these these central governor things and just be able to like burn ourselves down to a nub but we can't like there are these these things that come in and like we still have lots of calories on our body we you know and but but we reach exhaustion and we're done and and it may mean that we die and that's a to me that's a fascinating evolutionary bit of wiring you know that there's that much of a safety margin built into us um is is interesting to me I, I, I'm not totally sure what the implications are, but it's really fascinating. Well, I mean, we really shouldn't be surprised. Our body just has a protective mechanism to protect itself. So, right, right. You know, if you're an endurance athlete, it's going to protect your heart. So, it's going to tell you, you know, I can't go anymore. My heart is like trying to bounce out of my chest. Right. Even though your heart can physically probably take more, your brain says, I'm done. You know, I mean, it's you see it in in you know short sprints and stuff all the time where you really have muscles left, but you just can't you know, you, your body doesn't let you do it. Right. Yeah, Cause your brain, your brain doesn't let you do it essentially. Right. So one last crap question, Robin, we'll wrap up. So MSG and weight gain does MSG cause weight gain. I mean, one might retain a little bit of water, but I'm so underwhelmed from the, uh, I really don't think MSG is a, a problematic item for 99.9% .9 of people. And it, it the literature supports this. And I, I had the cool opportunity to live with a Cambodian family for the better part of a year when I, mm -hmm. I lived in Southern California. And they they had these, what looked like cocaine packs. It's these kilo sized bags of white powder. And they just had like stacks of them back in the pantry. And, one, and they would put them in these soups and stews and curries and everything. And one day I asked my friend, I'm like, hey, what is that? And he grabbed right. the bag and I looked at him like, oh, MSG, son of a gun, you know. But the the literature on MSG is, it, I, I just can't find much of anything damning it. And uh, uh, it's a naturally occurring substance just when we, we make um, bone broths and whatnot. And there's maybe like for people that are histamine intolerant, maybe there's a problem. But like the whole like... Uh, you know, Chinese food syndrome and all that. I, I, something else may be going on. I wouldn't be surprised if people are reacting to gluten in the food more than, uh, more than MSG, but yeah, I'm super underwhelmed with the, um, the boogeyman of MSG. Like I, it's just really unimpressive to me. So as we wrap up, Rob, tell us, what do you, what do you have a passion for? Oh man, right now it's mainly raising my kids and making sure my Italian wife doesn't stick me in a shallow grave too early. So that that's a <laughs> that's about it. But I I, uh, I really like helping people. Like I I love being of of service. Like that's kind of my my primary motivator for for doing this stuff. Uh, so I'll I'll keep doing it as long as I feel like I'm I'm helping somebody somewhere. I I definitely don't want to be like the eighties hairband that, that should have retired and, and shuffled along and, and did something else. But, and, and you know what, that, all that said, uh, regenerative agriculture is actually a, a huge part of my life. Now I, my third book, uh, sacred cow, which I, I don't think we can consider maybe no wrong direction. It I'm did. going the wrong direction all the way around. There it is. Sacred yeah, cow go. right yep. there. Yeah. Um, uh, that looks at the uh, ethical, environmental, and health considerations of a meat-inclusive food system. So there's a, a lot of 
discussion around the idea that that like animals and animal husbandry is is the like the primary driver of climate change and maybe that's not accurate maybe we haven't been given the full the accurate bill of goods on that and so my good friend diana rogers and i spent the better part of 10 years working on sacred cow the book and also uh the film by the same title kind of digging into that topic Awesome. I, I have not read the book yet and I didn't know there was going to be a movie. So thank you for that. I yep. definitely want to watch that and read the book. Um, so that being said, Rob, if anybody has any questions or wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, robwolf.com. That's where all, all roads lead to me via that. I, I have some social accounts, but I really don't go on them. It's broadcast mm -hmm. only because social media is way too toxic to spend one's life on. And so if you, if you want to track me down, go to robwolf.com and I, reply to damn near all, all inbound um, questions and comments and whatnot. So that that's where to find me. Awesome. I love it. Well, Rob, you are definitely, please don't stop now because you are definitely still motivating people, inspiring people and, and helping people. So um, you've got a long ways to go. So well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much for being on our show. I'd love to have you on again. There's a multitude of topics I'd love to have you on. I could talk for hours. We've went a little over time, and I appreciate you uh, being patient with us. So I appreciate it so much. And thank you so much, um, Rob, for, uh, for uh, coming on our podcast today. Thanks, Sean. Huge honor. Yeah. So uh, that uh, wraps this podcast up. I thank you all for listening and um, tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. So tune in every Monday at uh, 1230 to 130 Pacific Standard Time. Um, well, you'll learn everything about health and wellness from sleep to hormones to um, exercise and diet. So tune in. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham.